Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm feeling so refreshed after our little week break, but I'm so happy to be back. I know. It was nice. And we did the thing we always say we aren't going to do, which is we always claim we're going to get ahead. This is the time right. we <laughs> are going to get ahead. We are going to do it. Look at all the time we have. And halfway through, we're like, mm, <laughs> that's not really our thing. So why don't we just enjoy having a couple days off? And it was really, really nice. It was really nice. What did you do with your time? I mean, you know, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I did a whole lot of nothing, and that was okay with me, just hanging out with the kids, but then not feeling like a looming (laughs) thing in the back of my head about editing or something. So it was nice. It was nice to have a couple days, but I'm glad to be back. Yeah, me too. My um, husband, well, when this comes out, he'll be back home finally, but he has been gone. He was gone for a whole week last week, and I honestly just don't even know how I'm still here and kicking because... It was the longest week of my life. So (laughs) I'm just happy for so many things this week. My husband is back and the show is back and we're still friends with each other. So the last one is debatable, (laughs) but you know. (laughs) All right. So without any further ado, we're going to get right into the show this week. I want to just quickly say hi to Jennifer Garner. She's one of our listeners, longtime listener, and she has actually been begging us to cover a Georgia case for a long time. And I just find it really hard to believe that out of all these episodes, we have never touched on anything in the state of Georgia. Is that true? I she really says do. that we haven't. I don't have the energy to go prove her wrong. So <laughs> I'm assuming that this is the first Georgia case we've done. Listen, people have state pride. They will remember if and when we did that. Honestly, and there's something weird, and I'm the same way. If I hear like a dateline and it's from like Tallahassee or something, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's my hometown. Forgetting that it's a story of murder and you don't really want these things occurring in your city or state, (laughs) but like your whole thing is like, oh, I want to be represented on there. I get it. And we love Jennifer. She's great. We got to meet her in Atlanta. I almost said Hotlanta. I will not do that. Right. So it's actually very fitting that she's from Atlanta because that is exactly where this week's case is coming to us from. And we're going to get right into Google this city because, Melissa, I know at least one thing that you love about Atlanta, and it has to do with reality TV. So I'm excited to hear what you came up with this week. (laughs) Keep those expectations low. (laughs) So Atlanta is the capital of Georgia and also has a population of over 480,000 people as of the 2017 census. Here's the thing, Mandy. Doesn't that number seem low? For Atlanta. Yeah, for Atlanta, it does seem a little low. We all, <laughs> I'm sorry, I always have to comment on the number of people, but that one actually seemed kind of small because it just seems like such a huge city to me. So the original names for Atlanta were Marthasville, which was named after Governor Lumpkin's daughter. And the other one is Terminus which was a location in The Walking Dead. Did you watch The Walking Dead? No. I watched four seasons of The Walking Dead. What? That does not seem like something you would watch at At all. all. At all. Until one time, this isn't a spoiler, it's terrible, but a girl killed another, one kid killed another kid, then they had to kill that kid. I don't know, but I was like, all right, you are Melissa. Why are you watching this? (laughs) You can't do this anymore. (laughs) But yeah, so that was the, whenever I saw Terminus, I was like, hang on, I remember that. And it was in The Walking Dead. That's like one place they went to. So in November of 1864, General Sherman burnt the city of Atlanta to the ground, making it the only city in North America to have ever been destroyed as an act of war. In total, only 400 buildings survived, but the city rebuilt itself from the ashes, which is why the city symbol of Atlanta is the phoenix. I thought that was 
a terrible story, but an interesting um, way to represent the city. Atlanta is also the home of two Nobel Peace Prize winners and is one of only two cities that can boast that honor. President Jimmy Carter received his Nobel Peace Prize in 2002, and Martin Luther King Jr. received his in 1964. Atlanta is home to plenty of celebrities who were either born in Atlanta or later made Atlanta their home, including Tyler Perry, Gucci Mane, Andre 3000, who was one half of Outkast in basically my entire senior year, that's all I listened to was Outkast, Brittany Murphy, and the entire freaking cast of Real Housewives of Atlanta. (laughs) I think I've finally convinced you to watch Housewives of Atlanta because you have because now I know two people that are on there and so now I just have to I feel like I have to yes Eva from uh Top Model America's Next Top Model she's now on there she's kind of boring and her storyline's irritating me and Candy Burris who is from Celebrity Big Brother and she's so great and I just I did her. love Candy so I will tune into Real Housewives of Atlanta just to no, see Candy you can't tune in it is a dedicated thing <laughs> you will watch the season you'll be bored by Cynthia like the rest of us but you will be dedicated it's one of the best seasons that and New York are my favorite in the series okay last last thing the book Gone with the Wind was written by Atlanta resident Margaret Mitchell and much of the book actually takes place in Atlanta When asked why Margaret wrote the book, she said she had an ankle injury that kept her from walking around, and so she was super bored and wrote the book, Gone with the Wind. Oh, I wish (laughs) I could do something so amazing in my time of boredom. (laughs) So think of all the amazing things you could be doing and the books you could be writing, but here you are listening to terrible facts on another installment of Why Are They Googling the City Again? Do something with your life. Stop listening to me. Keep going. (laughs) So the family in this week's case wasn't exactly real housewives material, but they were pretty successful and well off in their suburb of Buford, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. Barton Corbin was a successful dentist while his wife, Jennifer, spent her days as a preschool teacher. Bart was a typical guy's guy who enjoyed sports and working out, and he had a way of making those around him lighten up with his very dry sense of humor and quick wit. He was also very giving and provided charity dental work to those in need, and Jennifer was really the perfect yin to his yang, if you will. Um, She was very vibrant and very outgoing. She had a personality that just charmed everybody that she met, and this couple had two young sons named Dalton and Dylan. This family became best friends with their neighbors named Kelly and Steve Como, whose oldest child was born coincidentally on the same day that the Corbin's oldest son was born. So that's always kind of a cool thing. I I think it's cool when I meet anybody that has my birthday. But then if I meet like another parent and they have a kid with the same birthday as my kid, you just have to be best friends. There's just no other way you can do things. I mean, you could say no, but... You can't. (laughs) (laughs) The law of birthdays dictates that this happens to everyone no matter what. Yes, absolutely. People have Hitler's birthday. Haven't you ever met somebody with your birthday and just... Yes, I have. But the person I met with my birthday, he is the person who told me that he would ask me out 
and be my boyfriend if the other girl he was going to ask out oh, said no. no. So I don't have a great run with birthday relationships. <laughs> oh, no. But thanks for bringing that up again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, so these right. two families spent a lot of time together, and they even hosted their kids' birthday parties together, which makes sense because they're on the same day. Eventually, this, these families became so close that the Como family asked the Corbins to be their executors and the guardian of their daughter in the event of their deaths. But as it commonly goes in these stories, things were not at all the way that they appeared to be from the outside. As it turned out, Bart had a bit of a short fuse, and those who knew him took notice of these little things that he would do. Like he had, he would have these bouts of impatience with his kids, and it was always over things like how they were performing in sports or just kids stuff. If they had an accident, spilled something, Bart would get a little bit upset and would show that like aggression. How He would show how annoyed. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. He also would get really irritated with his wife, Jennifer, over very trivial matters. By Thanksgiving of 2004, things had really taken a turn in the Corbin marriage after Bart had discovered an online affair that Jennifer had been having with a man that she had met in an online video game. He filed for divorce and planned to take Jennifer for full custody of their two sons. Of course, the next few days were very rough and messy, and Bart and Jennifer would each separately vent to their neighbor friends, the Comos. After several days of emotional turmoil, Jennifer told Kelly that things might be looking up and that Bart had agreed to go to marriage counseling the following week. But the very next day, on December 4th, 2004, Kelly Como awoke at around 7.30 in the morning to the sound of banging on her door, and when she opened it, she saw seven-year-old Dalton Corbin, very distraught and hysterical, saying, my daddy shot my mom. So this brings us to the question, who really was Barton Corbin, and what exactly had happened in this seemingly perfect and well-put-together family? To figure that out, we have to go back to the beginning when Barton Corbin was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1963. Bart and his twin brother, Bradley, were born to a military policeman and a bank teller. When Bart and his twin were seven years old, their family moved them to Atlanta, Georgia, and their father opened what would become a very well-known general store. In high school, Bart and Brad were polar opposites. While Brad excelled in academics, Bart preferred sports. He was slightly overweight and was bullied by classmates, which eventually led him to start working out, but the emotional trauma of being teased carried over into his adult life, and he had very poor self-image and always thought of himself as overweight, even when he was in physically really good shape. Even as a child and a teen, friends and family noticed that Bart had a tendency to flip-flop from being happy to upset kind of at the drop of a hat, but he wasn't the only one in the family that was like that. All of the Corbin boys his father, his twin brother, and then they also had another younger brother. They were all really known for being loud and boisterous when things were not going their way. Despite being better at, at being a football star than at taking math quizzes, Bart was driven and determined to graduate and go off to college. He landed on the idea of dentistry with a little coaxing from his parents and enrolled himself in the University of Georgia's pre-dentistry program where he also played on the University of Georgia football team. In 1986, Bart got his bachelor's degree and was accepted into the Medical College of Georgia to complete his dream of becoming a dentist. Fellow students in the dental program noticed Bart's short temper in fits of rage. He once threw chemistry lab equipment across the room after being unsatisfied with his experiment. Bart eventually obtained his degree in dentistry and became a practicing dentist before meeting Jennifer in the spring of 1996. 
The two were introduced by Bart's youngest brother, Bob, at a restaurant named Calico Jack's that Bob and his wife owned. Jennifer was a waitress at the restaurant, and she actually caught Bart's eye, and he asked her out for a date. Jennifer quickly agreed to date, and soon enough, a flame was ignited between the two. Just a few months into their relationship, Bart took Jennifer on a romantic getaway to Italy, where Jennifer unexpectedly became pregnant. Although the couple was in love, they had not discussed the idea of marriage or children, but after Bart spoke with his family, he decided to propose to Jennifer and raise their child together. They married on September 1st, 1996, when Jennifer was three months pregnant. And then in March of 1997, baby Dalton was born. In the early days of the marriage, Jennifer never complained about Bart's temper, but as the time passed, he began showing really his true colors. He would often yell at her in front of friends and family, and others who knew the couple said that Bart would snap in a second over really nothing. Despite the signs that the marriage was less than perfect, Jennifer became pregnant for the second time in 1998. The growing family needed a bigger home, and since Bart's dentistry practice was well-established, the couple decided on the affluent neighborhood in Buford, and Dylan Corbin was born on January 18, 1999, which was the same day the Corbins closed on their new house. That's a lot that to like do a nightmare. in one day. <laughs> and this was like, bef- I must, yeah, this was before the days of like e-sign everything, right? Like our whole right. buying and selling our house was like, you didn't have to show up for anything. So that is a lot to do in one day. So a few days later, the Comos introduced themselves and the two families became very close friends. Each family had an open-door policy, and they allowed each other to come to any family gatherings and to walk right into their homes at any time. I don't care who you are. You will knock on my door. (laughs) I totally agree. I don't know anyone that I would just be like, yeah, sure, just come right in. (laughs) I adore my parents, my in-laws, but you have to knock. That's all I ask. Just knock. So you can imagine the horror at this time that Kelly was feeling when little Dalton Corbin showed up on her doorstep exclaiming that his dad had shot his mom. And we're going to get right back into the story after a quick word from this week's sponsors. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal business hours, so why is counseling mainly available only during the regular 8 to 5? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find that you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms. We've been talking to you guys for a while about third love. We've now had our bras for a few months, wash them, use them, wash them again, and these bras are the real deal. They are just as comfy as they were the day they arrived. That's due to the high quality of the bra and the fit finder quiz, which asks a few questions to help you find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. 
Over 12 million women have already taken the quiz to date, and I actually had a lot of fun taking it myself. Third Love helps you identify your breast size and shape and find styles that fit your body. Did you know that breast size and shape actually matter when finding a good fit? I've said it before and I'll say it again. My Third Love bra is the most comfortable bra I have ever owned. So much so that I bought a second bra from Third Love. I love not pulling up bra straps constantly because with Third Love, the straps don't slip and there are tagless labels so there's no itching. Third Love bras are lightweight and have super thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape and are proprietary to Third Love. The newest member of the Third Love family is their line of incredibly soft, smooth, and breathable cotton bras. And you can take the FitFinder quiz like Mandy was talking about, get your results, and buy a bra to be shipped right to your door during a commercial break for Real Housewives of Atlanta. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. And now back to the episode. So before we took the break, we were talking about how we got to this point where Dalton Corbin, the seven-year-old, is telling the neighbor that his father has shot his mom. So as soon as Kelly heard this terrible news, she ran across the street to go check on her friend Jennifer. She entered the Corbin home through the garage, which was open, and made her way down the hallway to the master bedroom with Jennifer's two terrified young boys trailing behind her. When she got to the room, Kelly noticed that Jennifer was splayed out across the bed in an awkward position and that she had blood coming out of her nose and a gun next to her on the bed. Kelly immediately ushered the two kids out of the room and back across the street to her own home where she dialed 911 and very calmly told the operator that her friend had been shot. The 911 audio of her calling was so like, you could just tell this woman like, I, I you could just tell she was shocked. I mean, you, yeah, it she was, was, it was so sad. She was super calm, but almost like eerily calm, you know, not like suspicious calm, but just kind of like, she's just trying to get it all out and not freak the boys out. Like knowing that the boys right. are with her, she's making it all very, almost whispering too. Like she was just very, very quiet in that whole thing. Yeah, it was very sad. Officers and paramedics quickly responded to the scene and found Jennifer's lifeless body. There were no signs of struggle, and detectives noticed what appeared to be divorce papers next to Jennifer's head. Her death was thought to be caused by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. This is partly because, as I said, there was no struggle, and also there was, Bart was nowhere to be found in the home. And police eventually were able to track him down and found him at his brother's home, where he had allegedly had spent the night after a night out with friends the night before. It was Bart's brother who broke the tragic news about Jennifer's death. And according to him, Bart reacted with this extreme emotion. He ran to the bathroom and he had to throw up and he was very distraught, according to his brother. When the rest of Jennifer's family was notified of her death, they were all in complete shock. But what was the most shocking part to them was that the police were saying that she had died by suicide and nobody that knew Jennifer was willing to accept that. Jennifer's sister, Heather, knew that she would have never taken her own life in her home, knowing that her children would be the one to find her body. And all of Jennifer's friends and family really agreed that Jennifer, this was not something that she would do. The part that I like, you know, you hear these stories and a lot of times people say, no, nobody in my family would do this. This person would never do this. And sometimes they end up, you know, 
they do end up doing this. But whenever you think of her with her kids and knowing her kids were the only one in the house, that to me even seems more suspicious. Like, you know your kids are going to find you. I, I don't right. know. that It happens, but I can see where her family was like, absolutely not. You know, this is a huge clue for you that this is not what it looks like. Right. Yeah. Heather also told the police that her sister had confided in her recently that she wanted out of her marriage to Bart and had been considering divorce. Police interviewed their son, Dalton, to ask exactly what he had seen when he woke up that morning. During that interview, Dalton revealed to the detectives that his parents had been fighting a lot in the recent months and that his father had even talked to him about the idea of splitting up with his mom. With this new information, detectives quickly focused their investigation on the marital problems that may have been present in the Corbin's relationship. Even though Bart had an alibi, which was that he left his home at 10 p.m. the night before to meet up with friends at a bar and then went to his brother's place to crash for the night, the police still wanted to investigate the issues in the marriage to rule out any possibility that Bart could have had something to do with Jennifer's death. What they ended up finding out was pretty shocking. Both Jennifer and Bart had been having affairs, and Bart had been involved in his affair with the receptionist at his dental practice, who was a married mother of two for several years, actually. There were also rumors that Bart had been seeing another woman that was 20 years older than him. Jennifer's affair was a lot different. Around Christmas time in 2003, Jennifer began playing an online computer game called EverQuest. Have you ever heard of this game, Melissa? I haven't. I am not very well-versed on my fantasy games online. I'm not either, but when I was in my early 20s, my sister was a teenager, and she used to play this game, EverQuest. And so I kind of, like, know what it is, but I don't really understand it either. No. For those of you who don't understand it like us, it's a descendant game of Dungeons & Dragons, so it's like this fantasy role-playing game, and you can play it online with other real-life people in real time. And there's chatting and you do missions together and all kinds of stuff. So Jennifer had always been into video games, but she was quickly sucked into this particular game and she started spending more and more time playing it. Her obsession with EverQuest carried on for nine months. And in September of 2004, she began playing the game regularly with a man named Chris, who she had met online through this game. Before too long, they started talking to each other on other platforms outside of the game, mostly through emails. It started off as a friendship with innocent chit-chat and catching up on each other's lives, and it quickly devolved into sexually explicit messages being sent back and forth on a daily basis. After a while of this internet love affair, Jennifer and Chris began actually planning a life together and believed that they were soulmates. Jennifer's preoccupation with Chris was consuming her entire life at this point. Eventually, the idea of this relationship was on her mind constantly, and she dreamed of the day that she could finally meet this man. They were in contact with each other throughout the day, every single day, pretty much nonstop, and they would start their messages as early as 7 in the morning and talk well into the night, even into the wee hours of the following morning sometimes. But Bart wasn't oblivious to what was going on with his wife, and in mid-September of that year, he told his twin brother that he thought she was having an affair, although she had denied it whenever he had asked her about it. The tension continued to increase in the Corbin household. The idea of divorce had already been discussed, but Bart became obsessed with proving that Jennifer was having an affair. He would regularly search their bedroom, her computer, her car, for proof that she was cheating on him, all the while still carrying on his own affair with his receptionist. The relationship between Jennifer and Chris had progressed to such a serious level 
Jennifer had actually sent him an email practically begging for him to meet her in person so that they could take things to the next level. Shockingly, Chris returned the email with a confession that would turn Jennifer's world upside down. Chris was not really Chris. In fact, Chris was not a man at all. The true identity of the person Jennifer had been speaking to was a woman named Anita. Anita confessed to the lie after realized that things had gone way too far and there was no way to cover it up any longer. This is before catfish was a thing, like actual (laughs) catfish. And this, this whole situation... I don't remember if you're caught up on Sister Wives, but this is Mary and her catfish situation. This is exactly what happened in it. But Mary still to this Wait, day. Mary got this. catfished? Mary got catfished by what she thought was a guy, ended up being a lady, and she claims that it was never a relationship. This lady was just trying to exploit her. This is I don't on know Sister how you get Wives catfished guy. in this In this like, year. Yeah, because yeah, okay, everybody has a smartphone and everybody has a camera. Like, how do you not? Mandy, I, don't know. I think Dina Lohan is currently being catfished. And- <laughs> I think um, they helped her. The Big Brother people, like, found the guy or someone found the guy. Oh, no, Neve and Max. Right. Okay, we're off on a way crazy I can't wait now, for a review think- on this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think they actually found that guy, and he was who he said he was. So I'm happy for Dina. I hope they've actually met each other in person by now. Yeah, so – <laughs> yes, Dina, I, I wish nothing but the best for you. So now that we've got this catfishing situation going on, Anita confesses to this lie and she is, you know, distraught over messing with Jennifer's life, but she's still really, you know, obsessed with Jennifer. And she is actually from St. Louis, Missouri and was married and had two children of her own. So Anita did apologize profusely for lying to Jennifer, but she wanted to continue this affair if Jennifer was still interested. After giving it some thought and processing all of her emotions, Jennifer decided that she was still in love with Anita and did want to continue the relationship, and the two decided that they would meet in person soon. By Thanksgiving, things had gotten pretty nasty between Bart and Jennifer, and they were doing nothing but arguing and just being really terrible to each other. The family had Thanksgiving dinner with Jennifer's parents, who noticed that things were very tense between the couple, but at this time, they had no idea about all of their marital problems. On the way home from Thanksgiving dinner, Jennifer stopped at a grocery store, and while she was inside, Bart decided to look through her car and through her purse. And on this occasion, he finally found what he was looking for, proof of Jennifer's affair. There was a poem that had been written to Jennifer, printed out, and folded up inside of her purse. So when Bart stumbled across this poem, he became absolutely enraged and began screaming at her and demanding an explanation, all while their two young children are sitting in the backseat terrified. Jennifer begged Bart to please wait until they got home to have this conversation, but in a fit of rage, he actually punched her in the face while she was driving and nearly caused her to wreck the car. When they got to their house, Bart took off in his own car and Jennifer packed up the kids and headed to her sister's house where her mom and some other family members met her there. And she actually admitted to her family for the first time that her marriage was really crumbling and that she needed to get out from underneath the relationship that she had with Bart. In the following days, Bart turned the couple's house upside down looking for even more evidence of the affair to use against Jennifer in their divorce. He found her journal and read through entries, which outlined in great detail how Jennifer felt about her internet love affair. He met with the divorce attorney and told Jennifer that he intended to take her to court for full custody of their two boys. 
But a few days later, he had changed his tune and he had wanted to try to seek marital counseling and save his relationship. By December 3rd, things seemed to have cooled off a little bit in the Corbin household. It was a Friday and Jennifer had gone to the Comos for their weekly visit where Jennifer and Kelly drank white Russians and relaxed together. Jennifer left the Comos in good spirits. That night, Bart left the house at around 10 p.m., and it is confirmed that he did meet two of his friends at a Mexican restaurant where he had dinner and drank several beers before heading to a different bar and drinking more beers. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning when the men decided to leave the bar and headed to one of one of the other friends' houses. Bart refused to hand his keys over despite being too intoxicated to drive anywhere. And according to his friends, he insisted that he was fine and he took off in his truck into the night. At some point, he ended up at his brother's home where he slept until the next morning, which was the morning that Jennifer was found dead in their home of what looked to be a suicide. Investigators wondered whether Jennifer had taken her own life after becoming depressed over the state of her marriage and the possibility of losing custody of her children. But a random lucky tip would end up turning the investigation on its end and sending them down an entirely different path. And we're going to talk about that as soon as we take one final break for a word from this week's sponsors. Changing your eating and exercise habits can be really tough, especially when literally everything tastes better with cheese. Think of a food. Now add cheese. It's now 10 times better. But that's part of what makes Noom so great. You can eat that cheese and just balance your day with some other healthy choices. Noom is here so you can try something different. And we all know that sometimes we just need to break out of our habits and try a different approach. With Noom, you can learn, but you don't diet. Noom is literally at your fingertips. You can have the Noom app on your phone to access it wherever and whenever you want. Noom knows you are busy, so they only ask you to commit 10 minutes a day to yourself. What I really love about Noom is that they keep it simple. Every day there are new articles for me to read and Noom tracks my steps and gives me new goals. And I'm constantly learning new tricks to live a healthy lifestyle and not just diet, all while being supported in the Noom community and with my goal specialist. With Noom, I've been able to really see what I'm eating and learn to make better choices. I'm using Noom to stay more accountable to myself and just to make better choices in my daily life. I have definitely had some days where I have eaten like a garbage raccoon, but I love that with Noom every day is a new day and I can just start the next meal or the next day and I feel like I haven't just ruined all of my hard work. Noom is designed for results. To sign up for your trial today, go to noom.com moms. What do you have to lose? Visit noom.com moms to start your trial today. Again, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms to begin your journey today. If I could describe my perfect day, it would consist of 50% food, 50% TV, and 100% laying around in bed watching TV and eating food. The only thing I need to make this dream a reality is someone to entertain my children, the TV remote, and the Eucalypso sheets to go with the pillowcases from Eucalypso Home. So I used our code and I ordered them. I have really sensitive skin and experienced some breakouts still in my mid-30s, and I discovered that cotton sheets have fibers that actually trap bacteria and odor that cause breakouts. Eucalypso Homes eucalyptus sheets are hypoallergenic, which provides a clean sleeping environment and prevents acne. Like Melissa said, Eucalypso home sheets are hypoallergenic, and they don't trap in sweat and bacteria like cotton sheets do. All of this translates into less breakouts, less odor, and most importantly, less laundry. The pillowcases are so great and feel like this perfect combination of cotton and silk. They're super soft and ultra light, and it feels like you're always laying on the cool side of the pillow. 
Eucalypso sheets are sustainably milled in Austria in small batches, and 99.9% of materials are recycled and reused in their production process, helping protect the environment. Eucalypso has the most eco-friendly sheets on the market. So if you're looking for an amazing night's sleep, you can do what I did and go to www.eucalypsohome.com and use promo code MOMS and you can take 15% off with free shipping on your entire purchase. Again, that's eucalypsohome.com and use promo code MOMS and you can take 15% off with free shipping on your entire purchase. And now back to the episode. As Mandy said before the break, the police finally get this really big clue that changes the entire investigation. So after Jennifer's autopsy had been concluded, this woman named Mary Suday called the lead detective on the case with a potential lead, a huge lead. So she said that she had been bothered by a strange coincidence that may or may not have been significant, but she wanted to tell the officer anyway. I feel like usually if you have to ask, like, is this important? Like, it probably is. Okay, I was thinking that, especially as we get into this clue, like, how many times do people sit on information that just they think, eh, that's not important? And that's why they always say, like, if you have any clue, big or small, let the police decide if it's a big deal, you know? Right. And this lady luckily came forward. It changed really everything. So she said that her cousin was a dental student with Bart in the year 1990 and that Bart had been questioned by police in a very similar case after his girlfriend at the time was found dead of a gunshot wound that was eventually ruled a suicide, though many believe Bart had something to do with this. Of course, detectives were intrigued by this and wanted to look into it further to see if there was any connection between these two alleged suicides of women who were involved with the same guy. He called Mary Sue back right away to ask her for more information. Police learned that the woman in question was named Dorothy Hearn, but she went by Dolly, and that she had been Bart's girlfriend while he was in dental school. Dolly and Bart met in his second year of dental school and quickly developed a passionate relationship. She was bright and intelligent and had been pursuing a lifelong dream of becoming a dentist and joining her father's practice. Dolly was absolutely beautiful with dark hair and a huge smile. She was known among her peers to be incredibly kind and warm. She was genuinely just a happy person. She looked like a poster child of the 80s. I know we always say like looks are not everything, but just to get like a picture of this woman, like she really was a very beautiful woman. She belonged in a white snake video. She was just- She did. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty incredible. So Dolly was pursued by many men, but it was Bart Corbin who got her attention in 1989. She was completely crazy about him. Dolly's roommate, however, was not as fond of Bart and said that he never felt comfortable around him, although he really couldn't put his finger on why. It was always just awkward between them when Bart would go to visit Dolly's apartment. Bart and Dolly's relationship continued to progress very quickly, and within just a few months of dating, he proposed to her. He wanted her to commit to marrying him as soon as he graduated. Dolly wasn't really fond of this idea and didn't feel as emotionally attached to Bart as he did to her, and so she began to sort of withdraw from the relationship, which only made Bart become more obsessed with her. This made Dolly extremely uncomfortable, and she wanted to end this relationship, but when she told Bart, he took it hard and he begged her to stay with him. Bart's friends at this time noticed that he would become enraged when he was talking about Dolly and how she wasn't interested in him anymore and how he didn't feel like she was taking the breakup as hard as he was. This is scary. Super scary, yeah. Days after Dolly broke things off with Bart, weird things start happening. One night she came home to find her window open and some of her personal belongings were missing. And a few days later, her car was vandalized. The idea of somebody coming into your house when you're not there is like the ultimate chilling, terrifying thing. 
Over the next several weeks and months, numerous similar instances occurred and Dolly became fearful that things were escalating. By February of 1990, Dolly had found a new love interest and Bart was furious about it. He would show up to her house and bang on the door, demanding her attention and threatening to take his own life. Things went on like this for months with Dolly being harassed and pretty much hunted by Bart. Then on Wednesday, June 6, 1990, Dolly was at her home alone working on a DIY home project. Her roommate returned to the home shortly after 5 p.m. and found Dolly dead on the couch in the living room with a revolver in her lap. The gunshot wound to her head was deemed to be self-inflicted, although a doctor who had looked over the scene felt that something wasn't quite right about the whole situation. Dolly had been found with her legs crossed, slumped over on the armrest of the couch in a very relaxed position, which is not typically how victims of suicide are found. After learning of Bart's harassing behavior in the months leading up to Dolly's alleged suicide, detectives considered him a person of interest in the case and interviewed him twice. An autopsy concluded that there were no signs of a physical struggle or any sexual activity in the immediate past, like leading up to her death. Bart was eventually released of any suspicion in the case, much to the dismay of Dolly's friends and family, who were almost 100% positive that he had killed her and then staged the scene to look like she had taken her own life. And so Bart's life went on until he eventually met and married Jennifer. When the detectives investigating Jennifer's death learned about all of this, they knew in their gut that Bart likely had something to do with both of these women's deaths, but they would have to prove it in order to get a conviction. The investigation into Dolly's death was reopened and was happening at the same time that Jennifer's death was now being investigated as a homicide. The first step into proving that Jennifer's death was a murder was to disprove Bart's alibi that night. The police could prove that he did meet his friends out for dinner and drinks and that he was at his brother's home the following morning, but they had uncovered some pretty incriminating eyewitness testimony that suggested that he had gone back to his home that night before going to his brother's house. Through talking to the Comos, who were their, you know, their best friend family across the street, police learned that Steve Como had also been out late that same night and had returned home at around one o'clock in the morning. He told the officers that he remembered being in his garage and seeing Bart's truck pull into his driveway and that Bart seemed to have just sat there for several minutes before going inside the house. Of course, at the time, Steve didn't think anything strange about this, and really there was no reason why he would. He just thought Bart was coming home after a night out. But what did strike him as odd was that around 2 o'clock in the morning, he heard Bart's truck fire up, peel off down the street, and he was gone. Investigators had also checked into Jennifer's computer and phone activity from that night, hoping to get a more clear picture of her time of death. They learned that she had been awake late into the night chatting with Anita and even talking on the phone until 1.40 that morning, which is suspiciously close to the time that Steve Como witnessed Bart returning to the home. Police believe that Bart had, in fact, gone back home in between drinking at the bar and visiting friends and had killed his wife before staging it as a suicide and then leaving again. The only thing they still couldn't prove was that Bart had fired the gun or even been in possession of the gun that was used to kill Jennifer. When they tracked the serial number on the gun, it came back that it had been purchased in Troy, Alabama, and through some really good detective work, they also learned that Bart had a friend that lived in Troy, and they obtained evidence that Bart had gone to visit this friend just four days before Jennifer was killed. Initially, Bart's friend was uncooperative with the police and said that he did not want to be a part of any of this investigation. How do you get to choose? 
Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I guess because I can see how you would be like scared, like sure if you know that you did something and like although I feel like I would just be like, oh my gosh. But I it's just such a big deal if it's like a you let somebody borrow a gun and then they use it in a murder, like I would be terrified. Yeah, but wouldn't you want to say he said he needed it for protection and he used took my gun and oh my gosh, I had no idea this would happen instead of like right. well, I don't really want to get involved. Well, who freaking cares? I don't care. But he did say he like cared about both sides of the family. So I can understand where, you know, he might have loyalty to his friend, but oh my gosh, if somebody killed somebody, can we just tell the truth? Right. So despite not having him, this friend, as a crucial witness or having any proof that Bart had borrowed this gun, prosecutors felt that they still really had enough circumstantial evidence that they would be able to prosecute. And so he was charged in both Dolly and Jennifer's murders within two weeks of each other. Bart's attorneys were confident that they would be able to prove that both women died by suicide and claimed that each of them had logical reasons to take their own lives. Trial preparations were underway, as well as the jury selection process, when suddenly the friend from Troy, Alabama, broke his silence after months of refusing to speak to the police. He finally admitted that Bart did come visit him four days before Jennifer's death and that he did let him borrow the gun that was used in Jennifer's murder. This confession completely ruined the defense's case, and really because the prosecutors could now prove that Bart was the only one who could have carried out this murder. All the defense could do at this point was to come up with a plea deal for Bart to spare him from the death penalty. So what they came up with was that if he would admit to both murders in open court, then the death penalty would be off the table. In the midst of all of this going on, Alabama homicide detectives announced that they were reopening another investigation into the death of a woman named Harriet Gray. She was a 56-year-old divorcee who had been involved with Bart Corbin in some capacity and had gone missing the weekend of Bart and Jennifer's wedding. Her body was later discovered inside of her car at the bottom of Lake Tuscaloosa. Her family had contacted police after hearing about Bart Corbin's murder charges and wanted them to look into whether or not he could have also been responsible in Harriet's death, but they were unable to find any evidence that connected him to that case. Bart eventually decided to take his plea deal, and he stood up in court and pled guilty to the crimes of murdering his wife, Jennifer, as well as his former girlfriend, Dolly Hearn. So he was very, like, emotionless throughout this whole thing yeah. and, like, just didn't really show any any remorse, really. But I think he did have at least a little, like, twinge of embarrassment or something because I read this in this book that I read on this case that he told his family to leave the courtroom. Like, he didn't want them to be in there whenever he's admitting hmm. these terrible, terrible things, which I thought was really interesting for somebody who, like, didn't really seem to care a lot about anything. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't want his, like, mom and his brothers and everybody to hear him saying, you know, to admitting to d committing these crimes. Yeah. And I saw where his brother was kind of saying, like, we backed the wrong person. Like, they fully thought that he was – there was nothing going on until he, he admitted it. It's terrible. Yeah. So Bart Corbin was sentenced to two life sentences, but under his plea deal, he would get credit for time served, and under Georgia statutes, he would be eligible for parole in 14 years. Those things always fascinate me, and I get really interested in, I guess, how like laws are written in different places and how, how somebody who pled guilty to two murders, how do they have any eligibility for parole, and especially in that short period of time? I know, like, we've talked about this before, and, like, normally they get their parole hearing and, like, they might not get it on the first time, but it just blows my mind that they could 
that that's even an option on the table for them. I feel like he will likely never, ever get parole. And but that's part of what the defense said. He'll he'll plead guilty. He'll say he did this. He'll admit to doing this. But there has to be the option of him being able to go to the parole board. So then at least he has a chance in his mind. He could get out, right? But I don't think a parole board's ever going to be like, yeah, absolutely. You killed two people. Maybe you yeah. killed three. Let's go. They're, they're not going to do that. He's going to get rejected at every turn. I I believe that. And I know that the parole would – he would be up for parole the first time next year. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So he is serving his sentence in the Hayes Prison in Tryon, Georgia. I think that's how you say that. If anyone's familiar with that prison. Yeah. So the thing that upsets me most, okay, there's two things in this, like the whole time I was reading it, that really just upset me. The one is that whenever Dolly died, maybe if it had been investigated further and, you know, not to knock the detectives or anything, but if they could have found anything, maybe, you know, they could have prosecuted him then and Jennifer would obviously still be alive. And the other thing is... What a freaking monster. You know he knew his kids would wake up and see his wife that way. But I think yes. in his sicko mind, he was like, no one's going to believe I would voluntarily do that to my kids. So clearly she had to do it because what kind of person would let their kids be the person to find him? Right. That was really dis- that was a really disturbing part of the story that like he knew his kids were going to wake up in the morning looking for their mom, like ready for their mom to come and make them breakfast and everything. And that's just like so heartbreaking to even be okay with that, like at all. And just knowing like who else is going to find her. Of course it's going to be them. That's like, yeah, that's so I honestly think as sick as he is that that was probably part of it. No one's going to believe that he did this and let his kids, you know, find him. But also I think it's interesting with these kind of things, like he used the same MO. He, you know, it was all set up exactly the same. Well, because he got away with it before. So it's, because I always think like, why would somebody do this same thing again? Like the Michael Peterson theories of, you know, the stairs and everything. But then you think, well, they got away with it. Why are they going to switch it up if, you know, the first time it worked? So I don't know. This case bums me out. The story bums me out. And I hope all the families are doing well because I felt just terrible for her family and Dolly's family, of course. And his family. I yeah. mean, they're victims too. There's Everyone's a victim in this story except for him. Yeah. So as for Dalton and Dylan, the two little boys, they are being raised by Jennifer's sister, Heather. And she and her husband have two kids of their own already. So they have four little ones that they are taking care of. And of course, her sister says like, we watched like a 48 hours or something on this and she was interviewed for that. And she had said that the hardest part was not raising four kids. It was like missing her sister and just not having her there. And so, yeah, it's just really, really heartbreaking, but I'm at least glad the kids are with their aunt and not with her dad. What if he had gotten away with it? And there's, you know, yeah, could have happened. So that was the episode for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed that, especially you, Jennifer Garner. This was your suggestion. Let us know how we did on this one. Before we get out of here, we're going to do our last thing before we go segment. This is the last thing before we go. The show's almost over. You don't have to listen to us much longer. Tanya P. from our Facebook group wants to know if we could learn any language, what would it be? So I would learn Italian and Mostly because my mom's side of the family is Italian, but also I feel like learning any of those like romance languages, 
you if you can speak Italian, you can like understand. I feel like a lot of other languages, so I feel like it'd be useful to know how to speak Italian. Any of those Latin kind of rigatone. Yeah. <laughs> you have to watch Conan Without Borders. He goes to Italy with one of his, I guess, producers, and they just, I think, hate each other. But he just walks around Italy just yelling, like, cannoli, and everybody's just looking at him, and it's my favorite thing in the world. So I would learn Italian yeah. just to yell those kind of words. I just love it. And Italian is such a pretty language, I think. Some languages are, like, English is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But I think, yeah, I think Italian is a beautiful language. So I would love to learn it. I'm not going to. I just <laughs> <laughs> Unless you hurt your ankle, then maybe you could. <laughs> maybe I could if I got real bored. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would learn. I, so my daughter, she's like trying to learn a new language. And so we were kind of between French and Spanish. I've gone to Haiti Ooh, a few French times. French is and hard. <laughs> it is. And so I've gone to Haiti a few times and my daughter really wants to go in a few years. And so I was like, you know, the kids there speak French. So it'd be really good if you learned that. And then we've started French. And I was like, you know what? They actually speak Spanish too. So so because they live <laughs> close to the Dominican border. So anyway, so I think I would want to learn Spanish. Living in Central Florida, it would be really helpful to know Spanish. It would be. I took four years of Spanish and I still could not tell you anything in Spanish. So I took two years and the first year I took at a very small school and the teacher really used that time to let us do plays in English. And then so when I took my second year of Spanish in Spanish, my teacher was like, you don't know anything in Spanish. <laughs> and I really did not. <laughs> my sister's husband is from Guatemala. And so they, my sister lived down there for years and years. And it's amazing to hear her speak Spanish now. Like she just can, I mean, I don't think her accent's bad. Maybe other people do, but she, she's pretty amazing with it. But I think I'd have to live somewhere to actually be able to learn it, but I would like to learn it. I probably won't, yeah. but I'm kind of trying with my daughter. It's not going well. I can say like, me hermano but that's because i watched arrested development so it doesn't really help <laughs> perfect so the last question is from patty b and she wants to know and this actually was posted in our facebook group too by another person who just posed the question to the whole group so i thought this would be a fun one to answer they want to know how many kids did we want before we had any kids when i was young i wanted five kids because oh I had no concept of parenting or children. By the time, whenever I got married, like two sounded good. I wanted three for a while, but I grew up in a family of three. And the way it kind of works with families of three, not all the time, but sometimes two are kind of, you can always pair two off. There's always kind of an odd guy out. Not always, not in every family, but I just remember that kind of being how it was. So to me, it was like, well, if you only have two, they have to play with each other. There are no other options. And sometimes that means they fight all the time. A lot of times that means they fight all the time. But really, they're stuck with each other. And so good, bad, that's who they have. So I think two ended up being what we landed on. And that is as many kids as I can handle. And they're great. I love them. But three would have put me over the edge. Before I had kids, I really wanted four children. I wanted a set of twins. because I And I always thought I had a good shot at having twins because I have twins in my family. So I was hoping that I would be the one who would have twins. And oh my goodness, you twin moms are just amazing. I don't know. Because now I think about having twins and I'm like, I could not do that. I don't know what I was thinking, like hoping mm. for that. I see um, the benefits. There I are just, some benefits, but my I gosh. I do. I do. I see it. But yes, I definitely give all the props to twin moms now. Just knowing what it's like having 
two regular kids that are not twins, I can't, I just can't even put myself in that position anymore. Our third unofficial mom, Stacy, is the mother of twins. Yes. yes. And how yes. do you do it? She does a great job with it. So yeah, I mean, I guess you have to when you have them, but yeah, for me, I just think I would lose my everything. But you know what? People will say know. that that don't have kids. They're like, oh, I can never have kids. I would lose my mind. And you're like, oh, well, you know, it works. You know, I think right. you just When you're adapt. in the position, you just do yeah. it. Right. So after we got married and had a couple of kids. Two. I really <laughs> wanted to have a third one. I did want to have I a know. third. And I even told Melissa like so many times I want to have a third baby. And Melissa was like, just think about it. So like, give it a few <laughs> months. Don't do it Which today. Which is exactly what my husband also said. Like he never told me we couldn't. But then he was like, just think about it. Just like, let's just think about it. And then he even gave me a date at one point. Like he was like, I'm not going to talk about this with you until April of the next year. And so I was like, okay. Well, then by the time that rolled around, I was over it. And like, I don't know. I just, my kids are older now and I really am enjoying them at this older age. And now I really can't imagine starting over with a newborn and having another baby. So yeah, there is that window. Two, two is just good for me. Yeah. I, I remember when my I'm son done. was like six months old, I was like, I really want to have a third kid. And then I realized it was just hormones had taken over my life and something was not right because the idea of a third kid at that age was Really, I was delusional. I think it was just like a lack yeah. of sleep. I thought maybe one baby could take care of the other or something. Yeah. At six months, though, I was not thinking about having another baby when I when I had. A I six know. Month old, I was sure. losing my mind. <laughs> I uh, I didn't really get baby fever either time until like when my oldest son was like eighteen months. I started wanting another one, and then when my little guy was like two, I started really, really wanting another one. But. I am good now and I'm happy and those feelings have passed and now I'm just happy with my children and I think they're great. So yeah, I wanted four. I have two. Melissa wanted five and she has two. So yeah, that's just how life works. But I definitely tip my hat to those of you with large families and a lot of children. It is such hard work, but you guys rock at it. I don't know if I would, but you You do. do. (laughs) Way to go. Way to be you. So that is the end of the show for the week. We do have a promo that we're going to run. Melissa, who are we running a promo for this week? Make sure you check out Murder Mile. They have a really great show. You will enjoy it. So listen to that. And if you guys have not checked out our Patreon, I know we didn't mention it on the last episode before we took our little break for the week, but this last month for March, we did, we talked about abducted in plain sight. So I know a lot of people are really into that right now. So if you want to check that out, you can head over to patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. We've got to come up with what we're doing this month. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff over there and, and we have a year and a half's worth of Patreon episodes you can catch up on. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, all cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast 
on iTunes, Acast, or your favorite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.